Okay, so I have the pleasure of introducing our guest speaker today. Uh, this is my brother-in-law, Edwin Lin. So he's the father of my two super cute niece and nephew. Um, every once in a while, you can catch them running around here on Sundays. Um, I'm really excited uh, for Ed to speak. Uh, he grew up at our church. Uh, maybe he can share some stories about like what he remembers about being at South Valley. Um, he went to Leland. You went to Bret Hart in Leland. So he's like a local, local kid. Um, he probably is like neighbors or close by to some of you. Uh, he lives by Williams Elementary. So local, local kid. Uh, but what's really cool is um, he's, been, he's been like a great uh, example for many people. Uh, he's, he's been a speaker and uh, what I really appreciated him is how he models what it looks like to kind of live uh, and walk with God moment by moment. Uh, and so, you know, in church stuff, often we can uh, do stuff for God, we can talk about God, but with Edwin, I'm always so encouraged when he shares about how he shares from his personal experience of having a relationship with God. And it's very, it's very like, it's like breathing for him. And so it always, uh, when he shares, it reminds me of that truth uh, that like, you know, like the song sings, it's, it's your breath in our lungs where his relationship with God is, is like that. So I'm really excited for what he's going to share for us today. So please make sure you give him your attention. And if anyone wants to move forward, there are plenty of seats at the front. I encourage you to do that. And then there are some donuts. Help yourself to donuts. Okay. Thanks, Ed. <laughs> is it okay if I, um, can I take this off? This yes. Can I stand closer? Will that mess everything up, Jeremiah? Okay, because I, I actually have to look at the screen. I realize. Yank? I'm so scared. All right, hi, everyone. I realize you all have a very sophisticated setup. So I want to honor that and not mess everything up with the camera. Like, I'm fine here. And then I can look at the screen. It's fine. Okay. Move to the right. And back. Okay, but I won't be able to read the screen then. <laughs> okay, thank you. <laughs> All right, hi everyone. Uh, my name is Edwin. As uh, I appreciate Daniel and his introduction there. I don't know how you live up to that introduction, but okay. Um, but it's ironic in some sense because of what we're talking about today, this idea of embracing our failure. Um, but yeah, I grew up in South Valley. Uh, went to, like my parents brought me to CCIC back when it was at Newport, so when it was just starting out pretty much. And then they moved down by South Hills, which is down by Leland, that side, right, off of Camden. And so that's kind of where I got baptized, even, I remember. Uh, I think by the time we moved here, I was already gone, I think. I actually don't remember. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so I've been, I've been around for a while. Uh, I'll introduce myself to you a little bit later when we kind of talk through my introduction here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm very excited. Or I, I really enjoy or want to be able to share this message with you all. I've been talking with Daniel, I kind of know, and I, and I meet with Daniel's dad, um, my father-in-law, right? So um, on a weekly basis, I know that he got done with a series with you all at the all-church retreat that you just had like two weeks ago. I know that you've been going through some parables. I know that Daniel just, you know, I got to hear his um, message last week on YouTube. I know that next week he's speaking on the prodigal son and that parable. And so I kind of see myself fitting in the middle of Daniel's two uh, sermons here as kind of like an intermission, right? A kind of like a devotional. So I'm kind of approaching it that way in a way. Um, I want it to relate to some of the stuff that Daniel's talking about, but also I want this to kind of be a spot 
for people to reflect and think about some of the things that y'all have been thinking about and talking about in relation to your like personal life, right? Like, how does this fit? How does it work? What are some questions that you might have as you're thinking through this stuff? And I'm going to couch it in this idea of embracing our failure. Um, I have this picture of trash um, here, and it's hard to find ugly pictures online, which is kind of funny <laughs> because people don't post ugly pictures online. But the idea of our failure, right? When you think about our failure, when you think about sins, things like that, you obviously, I think, would say, oh, these are dirty things. These are bad things, right? It's very normal, very natural to think of it that way. And so when you think about like trash or, you know, we have another slide here uh, of a picture of trash. Um, but still, see, even online, it's so pretty. <laughs> like the re reality of our society is, right? Like we don't like ugly things, right? So like if you're on Instagram and you post something on Instagram, you're not going to post something that's gross. You're going to post something that looks pretty, right? Obviously, right? Um, but what I want to kind of say about here is that if we see our sin and our failure as something ugly and gross and disgusting, then naturally we don't want to go and embrace it. We don't want to go and give it a hug, right? And that's kind of what I want us to think about today in relation to what Daniel was talking about last week. Because if you remember in Luke 15, in the parables of the lost son and the lost, sorry, the lost coin and the lost sheep, right? In those two parables, it's about how Jesus goes after the sinner, right? So it'd be like Jesus going after trash, <laughs> right? Something gross, something disgusting, right? Like a sinner, he goes, he leaves the 99, right? He leaves all the other sheep and then he goes after that one ugly, gross sinner, right? And then it says that there's more rejoicing in heaven from the one sinner who repents, right? That from all this, the stuff that these righteous people are doing, right? Like there's a different attitude that God displays there in that parable towards our sin or our failure, right? Or towards sinners, right? And so at least for me, right away, it raises all these questions. And I remember being in high school and having these questions in high school uh, as part of this youth group in South Valley. Um, I had these questions because in the book of Luke, in that particular gospel, Luke talks a lot about this idea of sinners and poor people. And then he also talks about the Pharisees and rich people. He actually talks about poor and rich a lot. And those are actually symbols and images for something else. And we're gonna get to that, I, I hope, through this passage. But I was always really worried. I would always think to myself, okay, am I a sinner or am I the Pharisee? Or am I the poor person or am I the rich person? Because my family was relatively well-to-do. I mean, if you live in Almaden, <laughs> you are relatively well-to-do, right? Like you're kind of rich. Like, like my parents bought me a car as like a new car when I was a junior in high school. And so it's like, I felt blessed, but also guilty <laughs> because I would read these passages and they'd be like, oh, like these rich people, they can't get into heaven, right? There's like a passage about that. And then there's all this stuff about Pharisees, you know, and, and Daniel like mentioned this last week. He was like, oh, you all like might be thinking about what you are and you're probably Pharisees, but then he stopped short because I think that's a very complicated thing, right? Which I also agree with. It's like, should we, should we all, are we all Pharisees in this room? Like how do we, where do we put ourselves, right? And I think that's one of the questions that troubled me. Because in some sense, when we hear that parable, God runs after the sinner. We all want to be the one that God is running after, right? But at the same time, 
we also don't want to be a sinner, right? We don't like that idea or that picture of who we are. And so I kind of want to interrogate this more more deeply, this idea of like, are we the sinner? Are we the Pharisee? What does that mean? What does that look like? Like, how do we position ourselves? And then what is our response, right? Given that God is going after these sinners and God gives us all these warnings, right, about being a Pharisee. Okay, so I'm going to do that by like kind of continuing on a little bit with this metaphor. I'm going to get to a passage soon, I promise. But as a way also... Uh, okay, uh, there's gonna be, I'm gonna sh- describe two people. It's kind of like their resumes. And essentially, I want you to tell me which one you would rather be. Um, this is the first person. Straight A's in high school, nearly A's in co- straight A's in college, bachelor's degree, two master's degree, a PhD, completely PhD, two years faster than average time with, self, with a self-publication, teaches at a prestigious university, works hard, works multiple jobs, responsible, dependent, it's very long, responsible, dependable, regularly spends time with children, has a relationship with God, has read the Bible multiple times and trained in it, has leadership skills, and been in multiple leadership positions. So this is person one, and then the second person, Plays too many video games, always thinks they're right, yells at family, fits of rage when things don't work correctly, easily annoyed with others when doing other things, judgmental, expects everything to be done right all the time, little compassion for mistakes, argumentative when discussing. While arguing, they bulldoze over you by talking forever, difficulty giving people their full attention. So uh, this is obviously very easy, right? All of you would instinctively be like, yeah, the first person's way better. (laughs) The second person sounds like a horrible person. You wouldn't want to be friends with that person, right? Um, some of you who know, there's a few of you who know me, right? Like, these are both me, right? Uh, these are both me, right? Uh, there's, there, there are two people, but they're both me. Um, and that's, I think, the reality of most of our experiences, right? We can describe ourselves kind of in two different ways, kind of like Two-Face and Batman or Jekyll and Hyde, right? A common story. This idea that, that all people have kind of two parts to ourselves, right? We have like the good part, the ones that achieve, that are successful, that do a lot of good things, that can be very loving, but the other part, the bad part, that comes out, right? When it turns nighttime or whatever, when the full moon's out, right? <laughs> like we become this horrible person that can be very angry, can you know do horrible things, all this sort of thing. Um, yeah, and naturally, very naturally, We want to affiliate ourselves with a person on the left. We want to affiliate ourselves with the good things. And very naturally, we want to distance ourselves from all the bad things, right? And this makes sense. This makes sense in our society, in our families, even on some level in our churches with the way the Bible is written and talks about sin, right? I'm not here to tell you that, oh yeah, sin's a beautiful thing and we should want love that or something weird or glorify it or something weird. But I'm just saying, I'm trying to be descriptive here. I'm trying to uncover something that the reality is we are ashamed of the bad stuff, of the sinful stuff, of all the failure. And we're very proud, of course, of our successes, right? And this is conditioned to us in society, in our families, our parents, of course, they want us to be good, they don't want us to be bad. And as a result, when we are bad, when we sin or when we fail or we are sinners, we hide that, we want to touch it up, right? We feel embarrassed or we feel shameful over those things, right? So we distance ourselves. So even though this is both me, I subconsciously, inevitably, as a gut reaction, I distance my, myself from all those failures because you know those are ugly and gross, and I embrace this side of me, right? And I, I would like to think that I'm a good person, right? And so I'm just saying, part of talking through this, is because when Luke talks about this idea of a sinner, the reality is all of us have this sinner side, 
right? All of us have this duality, right? We all have a little bit of Pharisee and a little bit of sinner in us, so to speak, right? And so when, when Luke is talking about this idea of a sinner, God going after the sinner, um, God has this embracing attitude towards the sinner, like running after them, leaving the 99, going after the sinner, giving them a hug. But we have the opposite reaction, right? We like run away from that sinner. <laughs> we don't want anything to do with that person, right? Uh, we want to hide them, throw a, throw a blanket over them, right? We want to touch them up, make them look pretty, right? Um, and then we want to go the other direction, okay? That's something that's innate. Again, I'm not... I'm just saying describing. All we're doing is describing at this point. The other thing I noticed, by the way, making the list, a couple of things to share. Um, first is really hard. I, I don't necessarily recommend making a list of all your flaws. <laughs> it's really, it's really uh, depressing. <laughs> it's like actually pretty difficult. The other, uh, and so actually I had my wife help me. So she wrote a lot of these and she was like so happy. She was like the biggest smile on her face. Like this list makes me so happy because she always thinks that I always think she's like wrong, which is like on this list. And, uh, and she always feels like she's wrong. And she's like, I'm glad that you know that you're a bad person. I'm like, yeah, okay. I understand. Um, but I noticed that when I, you know, when I write some of these things down, um, I notice in bold here on the right side, like I, I very naturally like justify my failures. So like in these bold here, it says like fits of rage when things don't work correctly. If you actually think about that phrase, it's I'm trying to justify my rage, right? Like I'm pissed, but it's because things are not working correctly. If things worked correctly, I wouldn't be mad, right? Um, you know, oh, I'm annoyed with others, but when I'm doing other things. So if I have your attention, I'm like free, then yes. But if I'm doing something, maybe you should like not bother me. <laughs> and that's why I'm annoyed. In other words, even when I wrote this list, I was already like trying to beautify my failure. And it's very subconscious, right? Like I do it very naturally. But whereas if on this side, I don't do that at all. <laughs> We don't try to like, we don't try to like explain our successes by like downplaying them, right? Like, and if anything, again, if you write a resume, right, you're like, oh, I'm so great. Look at all the great things. Like if you're going to apply to colleges later, right? You're like, oh, I'm so great. Look at all the great things, right? You don't say I'm great, but like, I'm not really that great. <laughs> like that's not how people think. But then when we talk about our failures, that's exactly what we do, right? We're like, oh, I'm bad, but I'm really not that bad. <laughs> um, and so I tried to illustrate this on the other side here. If I pretend to rewrite my left side um, with, with caveats, like, like explaining things, right? I'd be like, ah, oh, straight A's in college when classes were interesting, right? Like actually, well, the, the boring classes, those are the ones that I didn't do very well. But if the class was interesting, I'd be like, you know, doing really well. Or, oh, okay, yeah, I have this accomplishment of finishing my PhD and stuff, but it's partly because I got lucky and this journal actually had a special that was exactly what my research was in. Okay, like I teach at a prestigious university, but the way I got that job wasn't that I had to compete or anything. It's because I was a student and I had like, relationships and they basically hired me two weeks before because they're desperate for anybody <laughs> so it's not like you know I earned that position or you know okay when I'm responsible dependable but only when I have enough energy so if I'm tired I'm not <laughs> or oh I'm, I'm a good dad I spend time with my children but only when I have time it's like yeah I think every dad is a good dad if they had time <laughs> like you know what I mean like it we don't write this way we don't think this way about our successes and I'm just again trying to illustrate this reality right? That inner subconscious, you know, in our deep subconscious, we fear being a sinner. We fear what it means for us to be a failure. And so we dress that all up and we try to make it beautiful.
So on one hand, when Daniel's preaching last week and he's talking about how, oh yeah, God loves a sinner. We all in our brain, we know that's true. We've heard it. We've been to church. We hear that message all the time. So it's like, if I gave you a quiz, I'm like, does God love sinners? Yes. You know, true. Um, are you a sinner? Yes. True. Right? Like, you know, all the right answers, but on a deeper heart level, in your true experience, emotion, thought, day-to-day life, we don't see ourselves as sinners. We don't embrace that part of our experience. We try to dress it up, right? We try to make it look nice. We run away from that part of our identity. And again, like I'm saying, I'm just describing here, this is the reality of all of our experience. Okay, I'm not trying to produce a solution yet or anything like that. We'll see how God responds to this sort of thing in a bit. Um, but that's kind of just what I want to illustrate, right? This kind of deep, on a deep, deeper level, do we really understand that we're sinners, right? Do we embrace that part of our identity or are we kind of in denial, <laughs> right? Like we try to deny that part of our identity, um, again, on a subconscious level. Okay, I think we are ready. Oh, no, no, we're not ready. Sorry. (laughs) I wanted to share one example because this is still all very conceptual, but I do think that this difference has very concrete experiential realities because we're all wired this way. So because we're all wired in this way where we subconsciously, right, try to dress up our failures, that we try to distance ourselves from that and that we, you know, we don't embrace our failure. We're in denial because of that it changes our day-to-day experiences, especially, I would say, our relationships. So I want to share about, I don't know, this is maybe two weeks ago, I don't remember how long, but basically, uh, I got in a fight with Eleanor, and right away, I already want to justify myself, because right away, the first thing that came to my mind that I wanted to say was like, it doesn't happen that often, so that you don't think so bad of me. Like, I'm a terrible husband, and I get in my fight with my, you know, wife all the time. Um, Whatever. <laughs> so, you know, I'm trying to embrace my failure here. Okay, um, we got in a fight. And in this fight, basically, I think you can see a lot of how our fear or our denial of our failure makes it worse, basically. It makes it much worse. So um, it was, I'll just give you some basic context. Uh, Asher, our son, who's eight years old, is getting expanders in his mouth because he has an underbrite. So he's basically going through like braces-ish stuff with his mouth. It costs a lot of money. I am terrible with money, I'll tell you right now. I'm really bad with money. So in our household, I tell Eleanor she handles the money. But of course, as you saw on this list, I will still judge her <laughs> for doing the wrong thing with our money, even though I know I'm terrible at it. So, um, but in any case, right, um, we had a situation where, yeah, he was doing this procedure. It was going to cost a lot. I was asking about the cost. I, like, I'm skeptical about this whole thing, but I, I can understand that he needs it, so it's fine. But, um, so I have a kind of a bad attitude about it, is what I would say. Um, but my wife, right, so they go do the procedure, we get billed for it, she pays the bill, and then uh, she, I was asking her a little bit about it, and she was basically saying, oh, like, it's under our insurance, and we're supposed to get paid back like $900, or something like that. And then she gets one uh, mail, maybe two weeks ago or so, and then she only, she got like, 200 or something dollars back. So it wasn't 900. So I was like, oh, that's weird. And then she was like, I basically said, ah, you should like follow up on that. Like sort of passive aggressive, but there's nothing there. There's nothing there yet, <laughs> but it bothers me, right? It bothers me because I'm bad with money. So, so it bothers me even though I know it shouldn't. I know it shouldn't bother me, but I'm bad with it. 
So, uh, so then she's like, yeah, yeah, okay. But I also know Eleanor is insanely busy. She's been very busy. She, she, she teaches, uh, she does a tutoring thing. She's now working with the youth at CCSE Cupertino. So she's been really busy the last two weeks in particular. A week passes, we get another mail uh, on the way home. And now it's like another thing that basically says that we're not under the insurance cover. Like our, our insurance doesn't cover this doctor. So now I'm freaking out. And it's pretty bad. Like, I again know that I should not freak out, that it's just money, that we're totally fine. Like, we're not going to die. We're not going to be on the street. Like, it's fine. If we pay 500 extra dollars, who cares? Like, I know that that is where God is. You know what I mean? Like, he doesn't care. Um, not, not the way I do, at least. <laughs> and, but I, I'm, like, freaking out. And so I start, like, I don't call it yelling. But I guess I raise my voice and talk loudly. <laughs> and when I'm frustrated, and I'm not frustrated actually with Eleanor, but I'm just frustrated with the situation. But, you know, I'm justifying myself. Um, but, you know, I'm like, yeah, like, uh, you know, we should really look into this. This is like possibly really bad because do we like, because this is only one procedure. There's going to be more procedures with the doctor. Do we have to find another doctor? Like so and so and so, so forth. And I'm like, how could we not check that it was you know, uh, that person's not under our insurance, like so on and so forth. And basically, you know, my wife smartly, I would say, like eventually is listening to me, but then like leaves the room. <laughs> and so then like, I'm getting ready for school because I have to go to school soon. And then I'm thinking about it and I'm like very aware that I'm wrong. Like I'm very aware that I'm the sinner here, so to speak, like I'm sinning against her, but it's very hard to admit it, right? <laughs> Because I am in a little bit of denial. So even though in my brain, I know that I'm wrong already, like in my heart, in my experience, I'm trying to justify myself, right? Like I'm like, well, she should have like, you know, I'm so upset because she, she didn't listen to me. I asked her to check up on it and she didn't check up on it. And like, that's really what's what I'm upset about or like whatever. There's all these ideas that are justifying why I'm sinning basically, right? And so then later on, we go, I go downstairs and we keep talking and then it basically explodes, right? Because uh, I felt that she was, she felt that I was accusing her of being a bad, irresponsible. <laughs> and then not also recognizing that she's been really busy. And then she therefore kind of threw back at me in retaliation, like that I was uh, not, like, I should just do these things if I care so much about them. Like, in other words, I should take more responsibility. And that, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not pulling my weight, so to speak, when it comes to this. So that was, like, very offensive to me because I'm like, I'm working two jobs and, you know. Anyways, <laughs> so it was really bad. It, it usually, again, I'm going to justify myself and clean myself up. It's really not usually this bad, but it was really bad. And then afterwards, like, I felt really bad. And again, the whole time, like, I'm driving to school thinking about it, I'm like, I know I'm wrong. Like, it's not that I don't know I'm wrong. Like, I know that there's so many points in this discussion where I'm sinning. Like, I'm not doing what God is asking me to do. But why can't I admit it? <laughs> you know, like, and even later on when we talked and, like, we're more, you know, even and then we, we, we work it out and we, like, apologize. Like, even then, I could tell, like, it was really hard to be like, I'm sorry. Like, I don't know about those two words, like I'm, those words in particular, like apologizing, like saying you're sorry. Like, why is it so hard? <laughs> it's because that's the moment where you're forced <laughs> to embrace your failure, <laughs> right? You're forced to be like, I admit that this is me. 
right? Like this is part of who I am. Like in that moment, this is what I was living out, right? And it's really hard to like go and give that dirty, gross thing a hug because you feel like, ah, like that's not, I don't want that to be me, right? And so it's interesting because I was thinking about this idea of apologizing and like if we didn't, if we, if we didn't care, if we didn't care that we're ugly and gross, right? If we didn't care, then like it'd be so easy to apologize, right? Because then we'd be like, oh, if I just say these two magic words, my spouse will suddenly feel a whole lot better. Yeah, sign me up, right? <laughs> like I just say those two words, like magic words, and then suddenly my, my wife feels better. Like, like I would do it out of love, right? But what prevents me from loving my wife in that moment is I, 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 don't, I don't want to be this. <laughs> I don't want to admit them this. You know, I'm in denial. Okay, so I hope you can see why this is important or why this plays a role in our day-to-day -day life. Now let's kind of take a look at how God addresses this in the passage. Okay, we're going to do Luke 7. And it's another passage in Luke, so it's kind of very consistent with what y'all have been learning. There's also going to be a Pharisee and a sinner in this story. And it's a pretty famous story, I would say. Um, starts in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. Uh, Jesus asked Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed, anointed them with the ointment. Okay, so we have a very simple scene here, right? Um, there's a Pharisee who invites Jesus over to his house. This woman of the city, so a prostitute, <laughs> um, who was a sinner, right? That's an important part, right, that Luke is telling us. He's giving us this information because he wants us to understand how much of a sinner or how much of a failure, so to speak, this person is in their society, right? And she basically, in spite of this identity, decides that she's going to go see Jesus at the Pharisee's house. So um, the reason why I bolded this word behold is because that's usually, that, that means like, look, right? There's something important that Luke wants us to see. And that important thing is this contrast, right? Jesus is at the Pharisee's house. Pharisees at their time were not only the super religious, right? Obviously, they're like supposed to be super clean, super holy, super righteous. But they were also in a religious society. If you were a Pharisee, you made it. <laughs> you were like the rich and the elite, right? Because they're a religious society. So our society is based on capitalism. So if you make more money, you're at the top. Their society based on religion. So if you are the religious elite, you are the elite, Right? So this would be like going to Bill Gates' house or something like that. Some famous person, some important person part of their society. And uh, back then, too, these houses were kind of like, when, when this sort of thing happened, they were kind of open to the public. So she's not, she's not like crashing a party or trespassing. She's technically allowed to be there. But <laughs> these are Pharisees. They would not expect a prostitute to come into their house, right? Um, and so, there, so I guess one thing I wanted to think about as, you know, in this part of the passage, um, what is this woman's relationship to her own sin and her own failure? Like, is she in denial? <laughs> I mean, I think she understands that she is not going to be looked positively, you know, when she comes here. 
I think she understands, in part because she has a very lowly or humble attitude, right, as she approaches Jesus. Um, there's some different renditions of this picture to try to get a picture of this. Um, so I have one picture here, okay, um, of this is supposed to be the woman here, right, at the feet of Jesus. It's really interesting because in Luke's telling of the story of this woman, um, it says that she was standing behind him even, which is like really weird because I don't know how people recline, like, the reclining thing is a weird thing in our society too. We don't recline this way as much when we're hanging out at a party. So I don't know. I'm trying to like visualize how is she also behind him but over the feet? And eventually she's basically at his feet, right? Um, but it's a very humble attitude. I guess the idea I had here is that when we embrace our failure, I'm not saying, oh, we go around and like flaunt our sins around or be like, yeah, sinning is so cool. Like, look at how I sin. That's not what I mean by embracing our failure. It's not a glorification of sin. She is clearly aware that she is a sinner. But at the same time, and again, we're going to see more of what is in her mind because we can't tell yet. But at the same time, she, she's not in denial. <laughs> right? She understands that she does not belong here according to society because of the things that she's done. So I'm not saying, in other words, what, again, the picture of embracing or giving a hug to your failure or like not being in denial isn't just saying, oh yeah, my sins are fine. They're, they're like, they're cool. They're not a big deal or something. It's not, it's not a nonchalant attitude towards sin. That's just one thing I want to point out because again, this woman, she clearly understands that she has done wrong and she clearly understands that she doesn't deserve to be there or even to be at Jesus' feet, right? She has a very humble heart. Okay, uh, let's continue with the story. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. So again, we see the same theme in a sense that Luke is constantly kind of giving us we have two different people, right? We have the Pharisee and we have the sinner, right? And they're, again, they're juxtaposed against each other, right? Um, here, the Pharisee, he says, look, Jesus must not know who this woman is, right? Jesus must not know. If Jesus knew that this was a dirty, gross sinner, he wouldn't even let her touch him, right? This added thing who is touching him, there's something vile from the Pharisee's perspective of this touching, right? It's visceral, right? That's why I tried to show you some images at the beginning of trash. <laughs> um, it's funny because when you look online, there's lots of pictures of really, really gross things that are so gross that just makes you want to like throw up. <laughs> like it's really gross. <laughs> so I didn't want to make people have that reaction, but that's the visceral reaction, right? It's like, ugh, why is this gross, disgusting woman touching Jesus, right? And again, I think it illustrates these two different positions, right? That again, in our society, right? We tend to have this very visceral, re visceral reaction to our own sin and our own failure, right? We just like reject it, it's gross. We don't want anything to do with it. And that's in our subconscious. Okay, let's continue. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Okay, 
So in this portion, right, he tells a mini parable, very short parable, just a couple of verses, but it is still a kind of parable. So Jesus calls him out. He knows what Simon is thinking. He knows that he probably also knows that the other Pharisees, I'm assuming there's other Pharisees at the house, right? Because it's a party. They probably also are thinking the same thing. What is this prostitute doing? Why is she doing this thing at Jesus' feet? It's gross. And so he calls them out, right? And he tells this story. And in the story, it talks about 500 denarii and another 50. So one person owes somebody. And the amounts there, denarii, is basically a day's wage. So you could think of it here as like 500, uh, you know, two years of salary, right? So someone owes two years of salary. Someone owes, you know, like 10 weeks of salary, something like that. And so the, the person who, you know, they owe to, they forgive the debt for both. And basically, Jesus asks this very simple question, which one will love him more? And Simon answers correctly, the one who, for whom he canceled the larger debt. So let me give kind of an example, maybe a modern day version. It might be very hard for us because either we don't have that kind of level of debt uh, or we've never been in debt. We don't know what it's like to be canceled the debt because in our society, nobody cancels the debt. So um, simple example. Uh, I think that, you know, sometimes with our group, we, you know, I go to a home church now. So there's a group of us. Sometimes we'll go out to lunch beforehand. Sometimes we'll get dinner together after uh, church. And a lot of times, because we're pretty close to each other now at this point, we've known each other for a long time, we'll like pay for each other, right? And honestly, maybe someone will say, oh, I'll pay you back. But then someone will be like, ah, it doesn't matter, whatever. You can pay me back if you want. And we don't really think about it, right? It kind of be like sometimes you, if you have a friend or a colleague or something, or you, you take turns paying for each other, you don't keep track. You don't know how much or whatever. It's just like not a big deal, right? So if you imagine someone like, yeah, like they pay for your meal, that's very nice. You still feel close to them. You, you, there's a love there, right, obviously. But, you know, not a big deal. Now, just imagine something different where you have a friend who you, uh, you were going through a tough time, and so they had to pay your rent for like six months. Okay, so they're paying your rent for six months. And then you're like, oh, I can't pay this month. I can't pay this. I can't pay this. And then after six months, you're like, okay, I finally have a job. I can start paying my own rent. I'll pay you back, right? I'll slowly pay you back. And the guy's like, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. It's fine. Don't worry about it. I guarantee you <laughs> that you will never forget that person for the rest of your life, right? You will never forget that person. Like the, even if you'll lose touch with them, you'll stop speaking to them, you'll always have this feeling of like this connection to them. You always feel like, hey, if they ever needed help, I would help them because they really helped me. That's like the level of love, right? That's been established in that moment because you had this huge debt and then that person canceled it. They paid the debt for you. Um, I was trying to think of this other example for maybe some of the younger people who don't deal with money and don't care about money. Um, it could be something like, I imagine, your parents forgiving you for something, right? Like, if you did something small, like, I don't know, what's small? Uh, you accidentally, uh, you, what's, what's small? What's something small that's bad that you do? <laughs> you break a dish. I feel like that's almost big, but <laughs> you break an unimportant dish that you weren't using anyway, and your parents are like, yeah, I don't care, it's fine, right? And like, so they forgive you. But let's say like, you know, your parents just bought a Tesla, and you go and you drive the Tesla, and you drive it, in, you crash it, and of course you're like, I'm dead, and I'm grounded for the rest of my life, and your parents are like, no, it's chill, it's fine, don't worry about it. Like, you can't even imagine, some of you are like, I can't, that, that'll never happen. <laughs> but if that happened, I guarantee you, you're telling that story to every single friend for the rest of your life. Like, you're telling that story. That story is going to define your relationship with your parents forever, right? That's this idea, right? This idea of love, right? 
the canceling of the debt, the one who canceled the larger debt, that's naturally, very naturally, you're going to love that person. That person's going to love that person more. Okay? And that's what he's illustrating in this parable. Very simple, right? Very simple. He's saying there's a correlation. Um, I would say, uh, I want to say it this way. He's giving us facts, right? Um, he's just giving us facts. Like he's just describing still. He's just saying, this is how it is. If you are forgiven more, you will love more. If you're forgiven less, you will love less. These are the facts. <laughs> this is the reality of the human experience. Okay. Uh, he's not telling us what to do yet with any of this. Okay, let's continue. Then, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little, right? Like, that's what we were just saying, right? This reality, this description, right? That if you are forgiven much, you will love much. If you're forgiven little, you will love little. So what explains people and their love for God? That's what he's saying. That's, that's what he's telling us, right? I always wonder this as a minister, as someone who like, you know, disciples or works with people, I always wonder like what causes a person to love God, right? Like he's telling us, he's like, if you're forgiven a lot, you will love God. If you're forgiven of little, you're not gonna love him as much, right? And that's illustrated by the way these two people, the Pharisee and the sinner, how they respond to Jesus in that moment. Again, descriptive, okay? This is all descriptive. He's actually not telling Simon, he's actually not telling Simon, hey, you should have done this for me. He's actually not saying that, right? He's just saying, he who is forgiven little loves little. Okay, this raises another question though, right, in this story. Does that mean that Simon has no sins, <laughs> right? Is it that like, oh, is the application of this passage then, we should all go out and sin a lot? <laughs> because the more we sin, the more we'll be forgiven, and then the more we'll love God, right? Um, is that what we're saying? Uh, clearly in the passage, that's not what Jesus is saying. Also, did Simon actually sin less than this prostitute, right? Um, that might be one you could maybe interpret it, but we also know from context, we, we could look at other passages in the Bible, but we could also just look at Luke, right? In the book of Luke, it's very clear, it's very clear, it's very clear that Luke is very critical of the Pharisees, <laughs> right? He's like, you guys are hypocrites, you guys are dead on the inside. Like he has all kinds of critiques. Jesus have all kinds of sins against the Pharisees. So this is not a statement saying, well, you Pharisees, you guys, you guys are so righteous. That's why you don't love me very much, <laughs> right? Um, he's saying, no, you, you Pharisees have just as much sin as this prostitute. But you don't, you deny it. You don't see yourself that way. You don't embrace that attitude, right? Because remember, we're all those two people. We're all the sinner and the Pharisee. All of us have that aspect to ourselves. We have the good parts of ourselves that are very successful, that can be very charming, that can be very good. We have the bad parts of ourselves, right? That are very sinful, that are very evil, that are very disgusting. And in some sense, which do we affiliate more with? Which do we embrace, right? There's an element here that says, hey, if we understand that we are sinners, if we understand that that's part of who we are, right? That's part of who we are. We're not in denial of that 
then we will understand how much God has forgiven us. And then we will love him much. Right? If we don't understand that, if we try to run from that our whole lives, we're running away from this, this, this terrible image that we're told that we shouldn't be, um, then we will see ourselves as Pharisees, right? Oh, I, I need some forgiveness, but I don't need that much. I'm pretty good. You know, I try my best. I'm pretty good. And therefore, we won't love God very much, right? He's kind of, I feel like he's giving us the secret in some sense to our relationship with God, right? He's explaining it though. So that's why I want to say, or that's where we can kind of end up in our conclusion here. What do we do with this information? Because I haven't really told you anything and nor has Jesus told you anything about what to actually do. He's only described the reality of our situation of where we're at. And so in the last part of this story, very last three verses here, it says, and he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Jesus saying to the woman, your sins are forgiven. Then those who are at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Okay, uh, this might seem really weird, and it is a little bit weird. Uh, it has to do with the larger context of Luke and this idea of forgiveness of sins. But I want to focus uh, partly this statement, your sins are forgiven, and also the reaction, right? People are astonished because to them, sin is something that is icky and gross and that sticks with you, right? It's like when I embrace, you're telling me to embrace this sinful part of me, but that's gross, and, I, and part of the fear is that that will stick on us, right? That that will define us. Like, I don't want to be defined by getting into arguments with Eleanor. That's why I have to justify. I tell you all, oh, we, don't, we don't get into arguments that much. Um, I want to justify, right, every single thing because I want you to know I'm not normally this yelly and this ragey and this upset or angry or whatever. It's because I'm really tired this week or because I haven't had time. Like, we want to justify because we're afraid that the sin will stick to us. But God has provided a solution through Jesus Christ. He says, yo, Jesus died so that this wouldn't be a thing. So that you can go in peace. Right? You don't have to live in fear or shame anymore. That's how Adam and Eve lived, right? When they were, got that fruit, they're like, I'm naked, I'm shameful, I'm going to hide. Like, we don't have to live like that anymore. That's the whole point of Jesus coming and dying on earth for our sins is that we are now free to live in peace. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to deny. We don't have to worry that the sin will become who we are, right? But rather we have forgiveness, right? Wiping of the debt. It's not who you are. It doesn't matter. It doesn't, it's not part, you know, it's not your reality anymore, right? That's part of the story. And so from that, hopefully we can find freedom where it's like, oh, I'm not so, I don't have to be in denial, right? Like, oh yeah, I'm a bad person. <laughs> all those things on that slide from earlier, they're all true, <laughs> you know? Like, yes, I have some rage issues. Like, yes, like, you know, and I don't have to justify them. I don't have to clean them up because Jesus has done it for me, right? His death on the sin, that's his death on the cross. That's what it looks like. So the first thing I would say, what do we do with this? Uh, it's so deep in your subconscious you're not gonna be able to ever see your sin differently. I don't think that that, it's, just, it's so deep, right? Like our parents told us the entire thing, our whole lives growing up, society constantly tells us this because anytime they see the bad stuff, they strike it down, right? Like cancel culture, right? Like we're never gonna, like so our subconscious, we can't fix it ourselves. The first thing that this suggests is that we recognize how different God is, right? We recognize that, yeah, I know I'm a sinner, but here I don't know I'm a sinner. And instead of running away from that, I can actually embrace that, right? That's possible, 
It's this new reality that's possible because of what God has done. The second thing, the, the thing I want to leave you with as well, that maybe is more tangible, it comes from Hebrews, a different passage. But it says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who is in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. That's, I think, that's, I think, in some sense, what we do with this. <laughs> if we are unable to change our position, if we have these two sides, sinner and Pharisee, and we know that the game is rigged, the game is rigged so that we tend to be a Pharisee. We tend to like being a Pharisee, even though we know that the Bible and Luke is telling us, hey, don't be afraid of being a sinner. Like, we also want to know that Jesus is a God who sympathizes with our weaknesses, right? He comes alongside us in the time of our need or in time when we're the weakest, when we're failing, right? He's not judging there, right? Standing away from judging. And so as a result, because, you know, we can confidently go to him and ask for forgiveness and grace and mercy, right? Um, if you think about this, going all the way back to the woman, like, that's what she did. Like, she went to Jesus. She knew she did not belong there. She knew that she had no right to be in that room amongst all these Pharisees who think that, you know, who are so holy, right, in that society. But she knew she also knew Jesus. She knew that Jesus would forgive her. <laughs> she knew that, you know, that's, that's part of that passage too, when Jesus says, the one who's, you know, been forgiven more. The woman seems to understand that she's been forgiven her debt, that she's accepted by Jesus. And so she can confidently go into this hostile space <laughs> Where everyone's going to be looking at her and judging her and being like, what is the prostitute doing here? She does not belong here. She can confidently enter into that space because she knows that Jesus is one of grace and mercy and compassion, right? Um, that's, I think, our hope. <laughs> our hope is that, yeah, like we're stuck. We, we're, it's going to be really hard for us to admit that we're wrong. It's going to be really hard, you know. Even when we know God is different, the way we change, the way we learn, the way we experience is that we experience that forgiveness, right? We experience being forgiven those debts. <laughs> because remember, the one who is forgiven much will love much, right? We will come into a loving experience of God and a loving relationship with him when we experience just how much he's forgiven us. And so we don't have to run from our failures. We don't have to hide them. We don't have to be shameful. And if anything, we confidently bring them to God seeking out, you know, anticipating his forgiveness and his love and his mercy to pour on us, right? Okay, let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, um, I just pray that you would help to identify, to understand, to see in ourselves, to kind of come alongside in truth with who you are and what you're about. Uh, we know that in ourselves, we may know on a cognitive level that we are sinners, but we also know that on a subconscious level, we often deny this identity. And I just pray that you would help us uh, not be in denial. <laughs> help us understand uh, through interacting with you, th through talking to you, through hearing your word, through knowing these stories, knowing how much you love the sinner, knowing how much you love this prostitute, knowing how much you run after the one sheep, the one coin, um, that that's... We're free. We're free from that, um, from our sin. We're free from this fear. And so I pray that you would help us to experience your forgiveness in our day-to-day -day lives, to be able to lean in, if anything, 
to our failures and to bring them before you, um, knowing that you see all the dirt and you embrace it and you embrace us. Thank you so much. Uh, pray that you would be with us this week. Help us to hear you and hear your love and forgiveness in our life. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.